Our sermon today is taken from Exodus 11. This is the word of God. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all this your servants shall come down to me, and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. This says the Lord. Thanks, Em. All right. So, friends, we're moving today in the book of Exodus. And right now, uh, we're in chapter 11, and some of you have been asking, are we going to do the whole book of Exodus? Because that's quite long. No, we're not. Okay? We're just going to go to the end of the plagues. And after we're done with the plagues, we're going to probably touch on some key passages in the book of Exodus. And then we should be done in around two months, right before uh, two months or so. But today... We're still in the middle of the plague narrative, okay? We've covered nine plagues, and you see from plagues one to nine, it's been a straight shot back to back, right? After plague one, it's plague two, then it's plague three, then it's plague four, then it's plague five, and it keeps all the way until plague number nine. Um, But our passage today in chapter 11, it's sort of a break before we get to plague number 10, okay? Chapter 11, what we're going to talk about today, provides some sort of transition between plagues number 9 and the last plague, number 10, emphasizing the severity of the 10th plague when it's going to come. And you know, some things about God through these plagues, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, characteristics like his justice, his holiness, his wrath, his righteousness, his power, his sovereignty, all these things are pretty clear from the plagues, Right? But I think what people miss is another character of God, which I think is emphasized today in our passage, and that's his mercy. His mercy through the plagues, you may ask. How so? Well, let's dive into it. There's three things I want to point out in light of God's mercy from this passage today. God's mercy is what our resources should point to. It's where our cries should go to, and it's what our obedience should be driven by. God's mercy is what our resources should point to, It's where our cries should go to, and it's what our obedience should be driven by. So start with point one. God's mercy is what our resources should point to. Okay. Before we dive into the passage, let me just give you important context. Okay, remember at the end of chapter 10, 
uh, Moses and Pharaoh had a conversation, and the conversation ended pretty emotively. You remember that? Pharaoh said, you know, leave now, and the next time I see your face, you know, you will surely die. That's what Pharaoh said. And Moses responded also very emotively. He said, fine, you know, I'll, I'll go. I'm not going to see your face again. And now, you know, in this context, when you say stuff like that back then, they, they really meant it. Like, it's not how petty arguments happen today, right? No, the next time Moses and Pharaoh sees each other, they're going to go at it. Pharaoh is going gonna, is gonna to go get him, you know? But then here in chapter 11, weirdly enough, you see Moses again talking to Pharaoh. How? How so? I thought last time they said, when I see you again, you're going to die. So how is it that here Moses and Pharaoh is talking again, seemingly in a normal conversation? Well, see, the conversation that Moses and Pharaoh had in chapter 10, it's the same conversation that they're having now in chapter 11. Moses hasn't left the room yet, okay? Picture this, Moses saying, fine, you know, I'll never see your face again. And as he was about to storm out and slam the door, God speaks to him before he leaves in chapter 11, verse 1, and says, hold on, before you leave, tell Pharaoh one more thing, okay? So now in verse 1, when, quote, the Lord said to Moses, this happened before Moses left the room from the conversation of chapter 10. All right. What did God say to Moses before he left the room? Well, let's continue in verse 1. Before Moses left the room, the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I'll bring up upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. We'll talk about what this plague is later, but for now, notice the severity of this plague. It will be so awful that when it happens, Pharaoh will not only let Israel go, but as God says to Moses here in verse 1, he will drive you away completely. He will let every Israelite go, men, women, old, young, all their livestock, all their possessions. They'll, they'll let them, he'll let them all go because the plague is going to be so awful. Now, here's where you see God's mercy. Not only will all of Israel go, but look at this. God will give Israel even more for their journey. Look at verse 2 with me. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. So on top of being completely let go when they walk out of Egypt, God will give Israel the silver and the gold that belongs to Egypt. So Israel, in other words, will not only leave Egypt, Israel will plunder the Egyptians as they leave, as they go out of Egypt. They'll take with them all of Egypt's silver and gold. Now, if you know the story of Exodus, you know this is an unbelievable act of mercy from God. How so? Why? God here just graciously gave them silver and gold for their traveling provisions. And eventually in Exodus chapter 36, we see God telling them to use it to make the temple so, so Israel can worship and commune with the God who freed them. However, do you remember? What did Israel use that gold for instead? Hmm? Some of you might know the story. Let me, let me read it to you. Exodus chapter 32, verses 2 and 4. This is after they left Egypt. Uh, in the middle of the desert, in their journey. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. <laughs> and they said, and he said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out up of the land of Egypt. What happened here? Israel used God's gracious gift that God gave them for what? 
to make a false god out of and worship it. And by the way, it's not any false god. It's a golden calf. A calf is a baby cow. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, do you remember which country worshipped the cow and elevated the cow as a false god? Egypt. Old habits die hard, don't they? Israel's been with Egypt for 400 years. Old habits die hard. What's even more bizarre about this is think about it. Did God know Israel would have used his gift and turned it into false gods, a false god? Of course he knew. He's God. So then why give it to them in the first place? It's to emphasize that everything his people own, everything, their salvation out of slavery, their silver, their gold, the money you have in your bank accounts, your clothes, your businesses, your fancy cars, your not-so-fancy cars, your grab car budget, if you roll like me, all of it, every bit of it was given to us by the mercy of God. Because just take a look what they did with it. They turned it. They replaced God's gift and made it into their own gods. Do we not do that every day? Do we not treasure his gifts more than we treasure him, the gift giver? What we have is because of mercy. Now, you know, some of us might be offended by that. You know, what do you mean? I deserve what I own. Don't you know all the hard work that I put into it? You know, but consider, who is it that's made you able to work? Who gave you functioning brain? Who gave you working limbs? What did you ever do to deserve any of those things? I lived in a Memphis, Tennessee for years of my life, and there's a great program there called MTR, Memphis Teachers Residency. Memphis Teachers Residency is a program where they train good quality teachers and send them out to the inner city schools in Memphis, Tennessee, because the inner city public schools there need a lot of help in improving their quality. And it's a hard gig. You know, a lot of students in these schools, they come from impoverished families and impoverished neighborhoods. And one of the first lessons that MTR does to uh, equip their new teachers is really interesting. It's not any new classroom teaching technique. They don't teach them the newest lesson planning modules. What they first help the teacher with is how to empathize with these kids. And the way they do it is they take all these new teachers to a big field and they line them up in a straight line for a race. And the leader says, when I say go, you guys have to race to the finish line, which is about 20 meters away. You know, and all the teachers were there. They're ready to go. They're ready to run. But to their surprise, before the leader says go, he first points to each teacher, and he says, you're going to play a role. You. It's like, me? Yes, you. You're going to play a role. Te new teacher says, okay. He says, your dad left you when you're two years old, and you've never had a father figure your whole life. So I want you to take five steps back from the starting line that everyone else is standing on. And he goes to the next teacher and says, you, me, yeah, you. Your parents physically abused you constantly and had no money to pay for your education except for this free public school. I want you to take 10 steps back from the starting line. You, says, you were born in a good family who loved you. And you have, quote unquote, the right skin color. 
Your parents had money to educate you. Your parents instilled within you a good work ethic. I want you to take 15 steps forward toward the finish line. You, you never knew your parents. You were raised poorly by your aunt and uncle, and you were also born with severe case of dyslexia. I want you to take 25 steps backwards. And then, after everybody received their different roles, placed in different starting points based on their roles, some closer to the finish line, some further away, then the leader said, ready, set, go. Who do you think got ahead in life faster than others? Do we really believe that what we currently have is a direct portrayal of merely our own personal efforts? I want to propose that's a bit of a naive view. What the Bible reveals, rather, is that there's a sovereign hand over it all to where not only your stuff, but our social standing is determined as well. Look at verse 4. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land, in the land of Egypt. The Lord gave favor to them. But yet do we not receive these gracious gifts from God? And like the Israelites, we end up worshiping it rather than worshiping God with it. You know, you read Job chapter 29. You see, you see the kind of life Job led. This is how Job's life is described before he lost everything, you know. He rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who has none to assist him. He was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. He was father to the needy. He took up the case of the immigrant. He was a man who continually used the gifts he had to glorify God and blessed others with. He didn't worship his stuff. He didn't hold on to them too tightly. He was able to let it go. Why? Why was he able to do this? Remember what he said when he lost all his stuff in Job chapter 2. All he had was taken away, his money, his house, his cattle, his children, his health, everything. He lost everything. Remember what he said? He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How can Job live the kind of life he lived? Because he never believed anything he owned was his. That's why he was able to give his money to the poor, his emotional bandwidth to the fatherless, his feet to carry the lame, his eyes offered to the blind, because he believed his money, his time, his feet, his own eyes, none of them belonged to him. See, reading Exodus 11 in the context of the whole book, knowing about what Israel will do with the silver and gold, it paints a picture of Israel and Egypt that is similar, doesn't it? They're both doing the same thing. Not one is better than the other. They're both portrayed as holding on to what belongs to God for their own use. Israel will eventually use the silver and gold given graciously by God for their own use apart from God's will. Pharaoh is holding on to Israel, a people belonging to God for his own use apart from God's will. What's the difference? Nothing. Nothing differentiates Israel and Egypt. You know, fear and ego, that's it, isn't it? Fear and ego. That's why we refuse to give God what is his. Let's talk about Israel for a second. You know, when Israel turned the silver and gold into a, a false god, if you know the story, at the time, they felt like God left them in the middle of a desert, of a dry place, 
So they turned to their silver and gold and relied on their silver and gold for safety. Turned their money into a false god. See? Fear. Fear. Now, Pharaoh. I mean, at this point, why hold on to Israel? Why hold on this long? At first, you know, there still might be some rationale behind it. He wanted free labor, right? Israel were his slaves. He wanted cheap labor. So he kept the slaves because it was good for business. But after plague number four, Egypt's flattened. There's no more practical reason to hold on to Israel. I mean, plague number nine, everyone was telling Pharaoh to let Israel go. All of his servants, all his board members were saying, stop, let it go. You're hurting us. But Pharaoh held on. Why? Not because he had practical, rational reasons. Ego. It was his ego. Pharaoh refuses to acknowledge that what he has is not his own because that would mean he's living under someone else's mercy. And friends, don't you know some men who would rather die than live under someone else's mercy? But as we continue in the passage today, you see what God is telling his people. God is telling them. He's telling us. He's worth trusting. And when you're living under his mercy, there's nothing to fear. Second point, God's mercy is where our cries should go to. Let's continue in the passage. So verses 1 to 3, we saw God tell Moses, before you leave, tell Pharaoh this one thing. And now in verses verses 4 to 8, Moses actually says it to Pharaoh. Okay, what does he say? So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. When the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, all of them, and all the firstborns of the cattle, even the firstborn of the cattle will die. There should be great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. Now, here's what I admit, okay? You see this story in face value, and it's hard to think that this is fair. I, I get it. Like, God would punish Egypt that badly for enslaving Israel? I mean, 400 years of slavery, that's bad. But killing all of their firstborn male children, that seems a bit unfair. But take a second. If you remember, what was it that Egypt did to Israel in Exodus chapter 1? Remember? God's justice here comes full circle. Not only did Egypt harshly enslave them for 400 years, but in order to ensure Israel's population not getting too big and getting too powerful, what did Egypt do in in Exodus chapter 1? They murdered who? All of their male babies. Why? So that Egypt can oppress Israel longer and live comfortably off of their suffering. You want to talk about fairness? This is utter fairness. Scary, isn't it, to think if God were to utterly be fair to me, how my life would actually be. But not only does this passage speak of God's just justified and fair wrath toward Egypt's sin, but it also, once again, reveals God's mercy and kindness to Israel, his people. Look at what he declared to Pharaoh in verse 4. This is, there's so much in this verse, okay? Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of of Egypt. This verse is loaded. I just want to point out two things. This is where we see God's mercy and kindness uh, to Israel. First, in this verse, God shows he will personally care for his people. Now, stick with me. When Moses says about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, who is the I that is referring to here? 
Yes, Moses is the one talking, but is Moses going to go out in the midst of Egypt and do this? No, God will. Okay, so the first person pronoun I here isn't Moses. It's, it's God, as if God himself was talking to Pharaoh through Moses. You see what I'm saying? God is telling Pharaoh, I personally, God, I myself, will go out in the midst of Egypt. See, president might send his soldiers to a country where his citizens are being held captive. But you know, I bet if his beloved children were held captive in a foreign country, not only will he send his soldiers, I bet you he himself will come down to that foreign land and rescue them. Why? Because they're his children. He loves them, distinctively so. God is saying here there's no power, there's no tyrant, there's no place scary enough to stop him if you're one of his from getting to you. Why? Because he loves you, distinctively so. Second, not only do we see God showing personal care, love, and commitment for his people, also God shows that he is most capable to care for his people. Okay, notice again, just still in the same verse. When was it God says he's going to go into Egypt? During the daytime? No. Midnight. Why? That's another jab to the false sun god Ray. Remember the false sun god Ray that God attacked in plague number nine when he covered the sun? He shall tell Egypt, I control the sun. There's no other god but me. Okay? Well, God's not done attacking this false god. Okay? The Egyptian, according to their myth, is nighttime. Is a time when the sun goes down, and therefore it's a time when the false sun god, Ray, sleeps. And when they sleep, when he sleeps, no one's watching over Egypt. So night times are scary times for the Egyptians because they're unprotected. God is saying here, I will come to my people at midnight. Because unlike the false god Ray, I don't sleep. I don't slumber. Unlike Ray, I will never leave my people unprotected. I don't take breaks. My attention will be laser-focused on my people every microsecond of the day. You see what God is saying here is just in this one verse, he's declaring so much that if you're one of his, he's saying he will personally care for you day and night, sunshine and rain, through your loudest laughters and deepest tears. There's no season, there's no realm in which he will leave you. You can trust him, see? And you continue on the verse 6, that's what it's all about. It says, after the, all the male children of Egypt are taken away, verse 6 says, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, this isn't just a cry of sadness. It is, but it's much more. Okay, whenever the phrase cry out is mentioned in Exodus, there's always, always an object of trust, a person in a higher authority that the crying out is going to. Okay, so Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, Israel was described to have cried out to Yahweh. There's a greater authority they're crying out to. Chapter 5, verse 15, when Pharaoh increased the slavery and, and the work of, of Israel, they cried out to Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 8, verse 12, Moses and Aaron described, was described as crying out to the Lord, okay? Whenever someone's crying out in Exodus, it always has to do with them appealing to a greater power above them, someone they trust. I remember when, when Tati and I were engaged, I was involved in the campus ministry, and you know how campus ministries are. You go to retreats and things like that. And we went with a bunch of students and, and other staff, and there's this one staff guy 
His name's Denny. He's a good friend of ours, okay? Big Korean-American guy, used to do MMA, and was in the army, you know? One of those gentle giants, though. He's, he's so nice and gentle, but you just know if he wants to take you out, he probably can, you know? One of those guys. And I remember, it's kind of scary. Tati was in a restaurant with a few college girls. And by restaurant, I mean Waffle House. So I don't know, is that a restaurant? You know, they were there and some guys were hitting on them, borderline harassing to where they had to hide in the bathroom. It was, it was pretty scary. And during that time, Tati picked up the phone and called Denny. Said, hey, you know, come to help me. And Denny did. Denny, Denny came with a few guys and, and he helped them. And I was so thankful, you know, that he did. But I also was like, you know, could have called me. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> to be honest, I, I would have called Denny too in that situation. <laughs> but in all seriousness, we do that, right? We seek out in times of sorrow, someone that we trust will get the job done. That's who we cry out to. Here in verse six, Egypt is crying out. But to who? Obviously not Yahweh, so who? They're crying out still to their false gods who are powerless to help them. That's been the message God had for Egypt throughout the plague narrative. These things you replace me with, these things you're making unto God, they're not real. They're powerless. They can't save you. They're incapable. Keep crying out to them. They'll do nothing. That's God's message to Egypt. But don't miss this. God here also has a message for his people. He's saying that if you want to cry out, then cry out. But cry to me. Cry to me. I'm the kind of God who personally goes into the dark, who seeks you out and will remain by your side even in the blackest, starless nights. Don't hold back your tears if you can't. That's okay. Let them loose, but give them to me. It's the safest place they can ever land in. There's a distinctive love that I offer my children that I don't offer others. And it's not because they deserve it. Oh my, it's not. Look at verse 7. But not a dog shall growl against any people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Not a dog shall growl. That's an idiom. It's a saying. It means no harm will come to Israel. Okay? So although Egypt will lose all their firstborn sons, no harm will come to Israel. God will instead protect them, seek them out, redeem them. But why? They both worship false gods. We just read, they both hang on to stuff that don't belong to them and use them in a way apart from God's will. So why does God treat Israel distinctively from Egypt? Why does God treat his people distinctively from the world? Well, read the end of verse 7 again. This is so profound. This is why. Here it is. Because the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Notice it doesn't say that the Lord identifies a distinction. It doesn't say that the Lord sees a distinction because there isn't any. Israel and Egypt are sinful. They're all the same. It says that God in his mercy, what? Makes a distinction, creates a distinction that did not initially exist beforehand. Martin Luther once wrote, and many 
say this is the most beautiful words he's ever written. Uh, he wrote, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to him. The love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to him. The reason why God does not punish Israel in justice like he should have, rightfully so, but rather he seeks Israel out and offers himself to his people to trust in and rely in and rest in and cry to and be with is not because Israel are in themselves distinct from any nation. Christian, you're not saved because you are in yourself distinct from anyone else, nor am I. The reason why Israel is treated this way because God, uncoerced, out of his free, sovereign, unforced will, decided to make, to create a distinction, even though he knows we every day will sin over and over again, and any gift he gives us will be used as idol worship. But yet he comes and creates that which is pleasing to him. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to him. Don't you see? Not only all the possessions that you own is because God gave it to you out of mercy, but anything remotely godly about you, anything remotely distinct and righteous about you that is different from the rest of the world, that is because God created it in you out of mercy. Not our own works. The more you embody that truth, Oh my, the more our egos will find its rest. The more your heart will find God as safe and trustworthy, no matter how dark the night might be, and the more you'll treasure him over all else. Then, then you'll be able to hold loosely to your silver and your gold and your reputation and say, this is for the poor. This is for the fatherless. This is for the lame. This is for the blind. This is for God's glory but you'll never be faithful with anything you own if you treasure your stuff more than you treasure God, which leads us to our last point. Point three, God's mercy is what our obedience should be driven by. Okay, notice at the end of the passage, verse 10, nine and 10, Pharaoh's heart was what? Still hard and it won't budge. You see that throughout the whole passage. Pharaoh was just portrayed as this hard-hearted, won't budge, I'm just gonna stay here kind of guy, right? With, with a stubbornness against God. Look at the end of verse three. Go back with me. Who was Moses described as being great too? You know, some people will see Moses as great. It was to Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people of the Egyptians, but not to Pharaoh. Only his Pharaoh's servants and the people of Egypt will view Moses as great. Pharaoh's heart remained hard, but Pharaoh's servants was seemingly repentant. They seemingly started to obey God. What do I mean? Well, look at how God describes Pharaoh's servants after the last plague in verse 8. All of those, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that, I will go out, God says. Pharaoh's servants will finally, seemingly, here, bow down and obey God. Wow, you know, they... They bow, when you bow down to somebody, that's when you acknowledge that being is greater than you. For example, in the Bible, whenever an angel appears, mankind would fall down, right? They, they bow to this angel, right, this angelic being. And when Cornelius, for example, meets Peter in the book of Acts, he bows down because he thought that Peter was greater than him. 
here, Pharaoh's servants, after the last plague, seemingly will bow down. They, they will acknowledge God is greater. Not only that, they'll obey God. Look in verse 8. They'll finally tell God and his people to get out. You and all the people who follow you, get out. You know, finally they're letting Israel go. They're obeying God. Yet this does not mean that they treasure God. It doesn't. How do we know? Look at verse 8 again closely. Pharaoh's servants bow down, sure. Pharaoh's servants obeyed God's word, sure. But in hope of what? In hope that God would leave them alone. <laughs> Get out, you and all the people who follow you. Isn't that interesting? Apparently, you can bow down and obey someone, not because you treasure them, but because you want them to leave you alone. We experience this in everyday life, don't we? I'll obey you, fine, the cornered husband says to his wife. Just leave me alone. Fine, we'll do it your way, the abused, scare wife says. Just leave me alone. Okay, dad, I'll take that stinking job. Just leave me alone, says the crushed son. See, a hard heart could look like Pharaoh's heart throughout the whole passage, just doesn't budge one bit, you know, just remains hard the whole time. But it could also look like Pharaoh's servant's hearts, who bows down externally and obeys God externally, yet not because they treasure God, but that so God would leave them alone. Externally, they look very different from Pharaoh, but internally, it's the same hard heart. No treasuring of God. How many of us, I wonder, obeys God simply so that God wouldn't be mad at us? Fine, I'll obey you. Just don't, be, just don't be wrathful to me. Just don't be mad at me. See, just because you acknowledge God's greatness and power, just because you give and you tithe, just because we live you know, in social philanthropy, just because we do all these things, it doesn't necessarily mean that we treasure him. So what then will make your heart truly treasure him? It's this. Here it is. Realizing what God says in verse 8. Listen to what God will say to Pharaoh in the middle of verse 8. After God is banished out of Egypt, you know, God will say, I will go out. Fine, I'll leave. Why? Why does God leave Egypt? Because Egypt requested it? No. But because his people were going out. Remember, he made a promise, I will never leave my people. I'll never desert them. He's, his presence is with his people, whether that be the darkness of Egypt or the dry deserts all the way until they reach the promised land, God's presence will always be with his people. And when you realize God's presence is always with you, that's when you'll start to begin to treasure him. But how do you know God's presence is with you? You know, it's interesting. Every angel in the Bible, when human beings bow down to them, they have this knee-jerk reaction. They say, don't do that. Don't do that. Get up. I'm, I'm just a creature. Even when Cornelius bowed down to Peter in the book of Acts, Peter immediately says, get up, rise. I'm, I'm just human like you. But you know, when people bow down to Jesus, it's curious, isn't it? He never told them to get up. Jesus accepted to be worshiped like the God of Exodus chapter 11. Why is that? Well, friends, it's because the Bible claims the man Jesus who received people bowing down to him is the same God we see here being bowed down to. 
in Exodus chapter 11. Jesus Christ is God who came down. That's impossible. No way. God would come all the way down here for me, for us. That, that makes no sense. But why not? Why not? Is that not the kind of God we see here in Exodus chapter 11? Is God not the kind of God who seeks his people out into the darkness of night? Is Jesus so different than the God we read here in our passage? How do you think God makes you distinct from the world, Christian? Why can God treat you with such an offer to always be with him, that he'll always be with you, even after he knows all you've done behind closed doors, and even after he knows all you will do that you yourself have not experienced? How? Because on that cross, the God you just read in Exodus chapter 11 sought you out and came down into our darkness and absorbed all the darkness that resides in us when he died in that beautiful, wretched night. Is Jesus so different than Yahweh? He is Yahweh that came to you. That's the Bible's claim. The way our hearts will treasure God above all else is if you first realize that God gave everything up for you on that cross so that he'll never leave you. The born-again Christian does not obey God so that God would leave them alone. They obey God because they realize God will never leave them alone and sought them out while they were yet still sinners in the person of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God, with us. That's what's going to make you treasure him. That's what's going to make you obey him at all cost. Indeed, I count everything as lost, Paul says. Why? Why, Paul? Why do you count everything as lost so that God would not be mad at you, so that God will leave you alone? No. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Friends, stop trying to gain righteousness on your own by obeying the law. You will not save yourself. You can't. God has to come down and seek you out and die on your behalf. You need a savior, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. If you're sitting here today, and you've received Christ as Lord and Savior, remember this truth. He's safe. He's trustworthy. You may not want to show your tears to many people, but it's safe to show it to him. Let your money be used for the sake of the poor. Trust him more than your money. Give your time to the fatherless. Use your feet to carry the lame. Offer your eyes to the blind. Trust him. Whatever the cost, grace this dark world with his presence because he is with you. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you have not yet received Christ as Lord and Savior, you're still seeking, you're still trying to find answers, then I'd love to talk about any of them with you. But I hope, my prayer is that as you ponder this merciful God we see in the Bible, revealed to you in Exodus chapter 11 and supremely revealed to you in the person of Christ, who come and sought you out, I pray you will find his meekness and his humility lovely to you. I pray you receive this offer of mercy.
because I've known people who'd rather die than live off of the mercy of another person. Let that not be you. Let it not be you. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing mercy that you have paid for our justice yourself when you took our guilty, dark record upon yourself and gave us your perfection and your righteousness on that cross. Father, forgive us for not being thankful enough of this mercy day in and day out, using our time, our energy, our money, and turning those things into golden calves, turning those things into false gods. But yet you, the merciful God, who not only knows everything we've done, but knows everything we will do, has decided uncoerced, freely of your own mercy, made a distinction. You created a distinction between us and what we deserve by taking on what we deserve upon yourself. A safe God indeed, a trustworthy God indeed. Let us now return and give the King of Kings who became poor so that we may become spiritually rich. Let, let us give back to him everything, all that we are, so that his name may be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.